0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 344. Continuing with our colonial series of shorts, short episodes, uh, we're going to push into the uh, gunsmith, uh, a very bespoke trade indeed, uh, from dueling pistols to Kentucky rifles uh, during the Revolution. So to say that every 18th century American man owned a gun is so nearly true as makes no difference. A hunter could find game just outside the town, and it was most an important part of every, everyone's diet. Most shoulder guns were flintlock muskets, smoothbore muscle loaders. Firing scatter shot effectively or short lead balls inaccurately. More important in quality, if not in quantity. Was the Great Kentucky Rifle, which really came it 's a misnomer came from Pennsylvania, of course, German gunsmiths from the Lancaster and Lebanon area in uh, kind of kind of in central Pennsylvania developed it with the advice and some pressure from woodsmen who knew what they wanted when they wanted it it wasn 't the earliest type rifle, but it was the first readily portable one and The use of the leather patch around its bullet made it the first that could be loaded in less than five minutes. It misfired once in a while. All flintlocks did that, we know that, but its accuracy is within a 200-yard range comparison with modern rifles. So let's consider back then. It was very accurate. No tool of this time was exact through an open exact enough to open a straight hole lengthwise through a four-foot gun barrel. So how do you bore that thing out? How do you drill it out? So the gunsmith had, in effect, to wrap the iron around the hole. To do this, he welded a (coughs) a quite thick strap spirally around the rod and then drove the rod out. Two feet was the practical limits of this process. He couldn't get his mandrel out of a longer tube effectively, so he made two short lengths and welded them from end to end. He forged on a suage to compact the hot metal and at the same time to give the outside of the barrel an octagonal shape. After he joined the two ends, the smith bored the inside using a small square cutter of steel welded against a long iron arbor which he turned either by water power or laboriously by hand-cranked machine or even treadle. Before boring, the gunsmith put the barrel against a grindstone and smoothed it up against its eight flats. The hole always came out a little crooked, and the gunsmith checked it with a tight bowstring and carefully straightened it by tapping the outside with a hammer. The bore still had to be reamed, to exact size and to a high polish with the same machine that did the boring. The smith made his reamer by squaring one end of an arbor and welding a thin strip of steel against one face of the square to serve as a cutter. He pinned a polished oval of hickory to the opposite face to give his reamer a guide that wouldn't scratch the surface of the bore. Spiral grooves in the bore gave the rifle ball a gyroscopic spin, which makes it shoot much straighter than one from a smooth-bore musket. Broaching these was a hand job done with special equipment on a long bench. The barrel was held horizontally in clamps. The cutter of the brooch had four or five sole-like teeth, each minutely higher than the tooth ahead of it. The block of the teeth rode one end of a hickory rod, and the other was guided by a sliding frame, which the smith pulled to drag the cutter through the bore. Mounted lengthwise in the frame and free to turn on its axis was a cylindrical jig with two spiral grooves in it. This jig slid through an index block fixed on the bench. Lugs projecting inward from the hole in the block rode in the spiral grooves and forced the jig to rotate as it passed them. Thus the brooch, rigidly fixed to the jig, also rotated as it moved forward and scored the bore with a spiral groove. It took about a hundred passes to bring one groove to its full depth. The smith gradually shimmering the cutter higher by slipping thin paper under it. Most barrels had eight grooves indexed by the flats on the outside. These were muzzle loaders and once rifled, the breech was plugged and the touch hole was drilled in one flat just ahead of the plug to convey fire from the priming pan to the powder charge. The priming pan was part of the flintlock. It held a pinch of powder under a hinged steel cover called a frisson. Pulling the trigger tripped a spring that caused the frisson to flip upward just in time to meet the descending flint, which struck it by a glancing blow that produced a shower of sparks to ignite the priming. Backwoods gunsmiths could make a flintlock sometimes filing out of iron they smelted themselves from, the one <coughs> from ore dug out of a hillside. They made the springs out of old saw blades. So this was doing things the hardest way, and when they couldn't, they bought complete locks from experts in Lancaster or Lebanon County, Pennsylvania, who also made them for urban gunsmiths. The backwoods had no monopoly on rifles, and muskets needed the same kind of lock. Gunsmiths whittled their own stocks out of walnut, maple, curly maple, or persimmon wood, making them only an inch or so shorter than the total length of the gun. They filed out the brass butt, <clears throat> butt plates and patch box covers also, and also the brass ornaments they inlaid into the wood. Soldiers still used flintlock muskets in the Civil War, through around 1816. A Philadelphia artist named Joshua Shaw had perfected the simpler and more dependable caplock. Shaw drilled a small, Hole of, in the steel cone and threaded it into the touch hole, a copper thimble, which is what well, he you knows, the cap, with a little <clears throat> fulminate of mercury in its base, fitted on the on the cone. When he pulled the trigger, a hammer fell on the base of the cap, and the fulminate did the rest. Many a flintlock gun was altered to fire by percussion. Percussion pistols became common by around the eighteen thirties. Before that, flintlock-fired pistols also. So we're going to finish up this um, with a gunsmith. It's one of our short colonial series. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Thanks, everyone, for listening.